Right now is the first time the United States has vaccines available for all three respiratory illnesses, COVID, flu, and RSV. We'll ask the new director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention how the rollout of vaccines is going and her ambitious plans for the agency's future. It's likely not to be an early flu season, um, which we didn't know. Um, because looking at the Southern Hemisphere, they actually had an early flu season. We're not seeing that here. So that helps us, again, refine the model to understand what's going to happen over the course of the next three to four months to make sure we have the hospital bed. So it, it does continue to uh, inform uh, our work. Our guest is Dr. Mandy Cohen. While she has been at the helm of CDC for only three months, she has long been recognized as a top health leader with experience heading up large and complex organizations and a proven track record of protecting America's health and safety. And what I want folks to remember is that more than 70% of the dollars that go to CDC flow then directly to states and localities, right? They go right to your back backyard. So I'm trying to help members of Congress understand that when they're funding the CDC, they're actually funding their own communities to be safe and protected. But we have to work together as a system. And that goes back to making sure that we have the data infrastructure, that we're all having that data flow in a way where we can identify threats and respond to them quickly. This is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, welcome, Dr. Cohen, to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, we know you and the CDC have been very active in recommending everyone six months and older get an updated COVID vaccine. Yet there are reports from colleagues in the community health center space have received only a small number of doses they've ordered. There are also stories about some people having trouble getting their insurance to pay. One pediatrician told the Washington Post, quote, COVID vaccine uptake among children has been abysmal, but if we have to fight for payment from insurance companies, it's going to be even worse. I wonder if you could set the record straight. Yeah, well, first, great to have this conversation, super important. As you know, as we get into fall and winter, we're gonna have three viruses circulating uh, this fall and winter, COVID, flu, and RSV. But for the first time in history, we have vaccines against all three of them. But the process is different as we get into this uh, to this season than it was in the past, particularly with COVID. So in the last number of years for, for COVID, the federal government has both purchased and distributed the COVID vaccine, which means we didn't have to go through insurance. Um, we didn't sort of have to go through the normal processes that, that our health centers and doctors uh, go through to actually get vaccine and deliver it. This year, it is different. So the private sector is uh, is managing the process this year. So the way folks order and the way that they bill for it is different, particularly for COVID. Um, so there, and there's a couple of different features of it. If you're working with adults, uh, then there's a certain process and different for children. And I'll go through both. So for adults, if you have insurance, this should cover your vaccine for free through your insurance, or there is a program that the CDC runs for COVID for you to get a free vaccine. Um, and those programs are run through um, partners like CVS, Walgreens, and um, uh, health centers and others. Um, so that's if you are an adult. 
Um, for children, we do have a vaccines for children's program. So if you are uninsured or underinsured, that program has existed for a long time. So our pediatricians know how to use that program. Um, and so the ordering is somewhat di- the, the same there. Um, so we are in a different place. Um, and we are trying to work with the private sector to make sure that they can get their vaccine out to providers as quickly as possible and that they know the new process for going through billing of our insurance for the first time. Now, there are a number of times where insurance are required to cover this, but they hadn't set up their computer systems and such. But I think now that we're about three weeks into this, um, we've wor- worked out a lot of those operational kinks. So um, hopefully we've been jumping on those problems. And now we're just in a place where we're encouraging folks to uh, get vaccinated. Well, thank you for uh, laying all that clear for people. I want to give a name to the program Bridge Access uh, Program, the CDC Bridge Access Program, which is uh, how I think we're referring to the vaccines that are coming for uninsured and underinsured uh, adults in the community. But I really want to uh, ask you, Dr. Cohen, I know uh, CDC and, and, and you are so concerned with the health equity issues. Do you feel like you have a sufficient supply network out there for the uninsured and underinsured through these pharmacies who are relatively new partners, I think, uh, to the CDC in this business of vaccinating the country when that's called for, as well as the health centers who are more traditional long-term partners. How, how are you feeling about this as a strategy to get at the health equity issue around the vaccine? Well, look, when we were in the emergency and we had more partners and more ability to direct exactly where these vaccines would go. I think we had a better ability to both have data to see which communities might have lower vaccination supply or uptake, and we could sort of adjust. In this time, we just don't have the same level of ability, but we need to use our our the partners that are are able to vaccinate um, folks. So CDC partnered with our major pharmacy chains, um, which you know are are diverse um, across the country. But in addition, our public health departments, as always, and federally qualified uh, health centers. So, you know, they are ones that already serve often historically marginalized communities. Um, But I don't think it's as many tools as we've had in the past. So this is why we need everyone to do everything they can to think about getting the word out and making access as easy as possible for folks. So we did partner with CVS and Walgreens, two big um, retail chains that are in many, many, many communities, but not all, which is why our public health departments continue to be an important partner in all of this, as well as those health centers. Um, but re- remember, call your own doctors, make, see if they have a vaccine as well. Um, if you don't have a doctor, you know, make sure thinking about those pharmacy chains being one, one outlet for you. Well, that's that's really great advice. And despite all of these efforts and and you reminded us this, this is just starting off, but only seven million Americans so far have received an updated covid vaccine. And we hear even from our good friend, Dr. Paul Offit, a former member of the CDC's advisory committee on immunization practices, says he's not planning to get it. Uh, I'm just wondering if you're worried about hesitancy over the covid vaccine. Is it going to stop people from getting the flu and the RSV vaccine? Well, first, more than 10 million Americans have already gotten the updated COVID vaccine. Um, We're continuing to see millions of Americans get their updated flu shot. RSV, again, is only for our older adults, and we have um, an immunization for our babies, and that's um, uh, 
historic. We've never had that before. But I do think that folks um, need to hear from trusted partners, trusted um, folks in their lives. Often that is their doctor, um, or maybe it is a nurse practitioner or a nurse um, that that they see. Um, we know from our, our research, those continue to be the most trusted messengers uh, related to this information. The most common reason that someone did not get vaccinated is that their doctor didn't offer it to them. And they didn't talk to them about it. And right. So those are really powerful moments and conversations. So we are doing a lot of talking to our physician community, to our nurse practitioner community and nursing and others um, to, to talk about the importance of just bringing it up with your with your patients. And look, uh, we've looked at this data very closely. I think these vaccines have been studied extensively by independent bodies um, and the safety of them has been you know, reviewed. I wouldn't recommend vaccines for the American people that I wouldn't recommend for my own family. So I've gotten my updated COVID vaccine, got it last week. I got my updated flu shot. My kids who are nine and 11 just got their updated COVID vaccine yesterday. In fact, my husband's been vaccinated, my parents who are over 65. So again, this is something I'd recommend for my own family to keep them safe. And again, what, what we're seeing in the data, um, let me talk about kids, for example. Um, we know that yes, this virus does impact older adults most, right? So 65 and up, that's where we're spending a lot of time. But if you look even at data for kids, unfortunately, we're still seeing a number of kids get into the ICU with COVID. And the striking part is about half of those kids have no underlying conditions. They don't have asthma or another medical condition that would have put them at higher risk that we, we just are seeing these kids with no underlying conditions get very, very sick from COVID. And so if we have a safe vaccine that can protect them, I want parents to be able to, to understand that and choose that tool for, for their children to keep them safe. Um, so again, that's the word we're trying to get out to folks. Um, that's why we have committees that review this data, look at the risks and benefits. And that's why we made the recommendation that everyone over the age of six months get that updated COVID vaccine. But don't forget your flu shot. Still super important to get that as well. And then for RSV, if you are over 60. Great. Well, I do think... Uh... Your healthcare provider is the trusted messenger. When you can add to that your own experience with your family, it carries a lot of weight. So thank you, uh, Dr. Cohn, for sharing that. Uh, I think over the last couple of years, uh, people in America have gotten more of an education in the whole world of vaccines and immunizations than they may ever have wanted to since they last thought about their tetanus shot 10 years ago or their children's vaccines. But I wonder if I could ask you, uh, because it is it is new and so important to maybe just say a few words more about the RSV vaccine uh, mm -hmm. and the ability to protect uh, against it, either with a vaccine given during pregnancy or to a baby after birth. I don't think that one's on the radar. This is exciting in terms of being able to protect our babies. Yes, so we are excited. And there's actually three different types of immunization for RSV. So there's one for our older adults I was mentioning who are 60 and up. And there are there is a vaccine for moms who are pregnant. So between 32 and 36 weeks pregnant. And what happens there, you, you get vaccinated as a pregnant mom, you make antibodies and you give those, those antibodies to your baby. So then the baby is born with antibodies 
against RSV and are protected through that first RSV season, which is when they tend to get exposed and are at the highest risk. They have the tiniest bronchioles, um, right, and have the most risk of their their lungs uh, not doing well with RSV. But there is also, for the first time, an immunization for our babies. So for babies who are under eight months of age, we have a new immunization that's a long-acting monoclonal antibody. So we actually give the babies antibodies directly. So it's slightly different than a vaccine, but it is an immunization. It does provide you immunity or protection for your baby. And that protection can last for the whole first season of RSV. It's called nirsevimab. Um, and again, it's something that you can get through your pediatrician. So again, something for, for young families to go talk about with their pediatrician um, and, and getting their kids vaccinated. Again, for those who are under eight months or if they have some increased risk, sometimes we will also offer that vaccine if they're, they're going into their second RSV season and they have underlying um, medical conditions uh, that, that would make it necessary for them to get it. And Dr. Cohen, I'm wondering if we can uh, turn to uh, long COVID. Uh, you know, we've really devoted a lot of our program time uh, discussing long COVID. We have Dr. Horowitz from uh, uh, N uh, NYU Langone, who's heading up the NIH uh, study there and also uh, leads at Yale and uh, Mayo Clinic. And there's been some confusion about if the updated vaccine can prevent long COVID. So I'm wondering if you could just clear that up for our listeners. So we know we're still learning about long COVID, but early data does show that there is a decreased risk of long COVID if you are vaccinated and you continue to get yourself the updated uh, vaccines. So again, we see a decreased risk um, if you are keeping yourself updated um, with your vaccines. So again, still early, still learning, but I would say that's both with vaccine and with treatment, right? So the more that we can also get tested and get treated also reduces your risk of, of long COVID, but it's still early days, still learning. But that's another reason that particularly why I talk to folks who are, are my, my age and in, in their forties, they say, you know, I've had COVID, why should I get vaccinated again? You know, I give them a few reasons. One, the virus is changing. Second, your immunity is going down. And third, you are at a risk of, of long COVID and you don't want extended symptoms from this, this disease. And getting vaccinated, getting treatment um, does help decrease that risk. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Cohn, for talking about that. And if I can just stay on the subject for a minute more, uh, over the course of many conversations with uh, our guest, uh, guess these uh, past two years, the issue of whether long COVID really exists, is it a pseudo diagnosis, mm -hmm. props up in the media, particularly from time to time. And um, I understand there's a pretty recent breakthrough in terms of being able to really identify distinct differences in the blood of people with long COVID. Maybe comment on that. And also, will do you think it will put to rest some of the skepticism that's been out there, which is very difficult for people suffering with this condition? Yeah, it's we're still learning a lot. And I think that there are many viral illnesses that have extended symptoms that I think our study in the long COVID space will actually be able to inform. But we have we the Biden administration have invested a significant amount of research dollars to understand this better. And I do think we need to um, and understand what are the things that cause it? Uh, what are the ways to prevent it or reduce the risk of it? Um, so again, early days here, but we are definitely seeing a constellation of symptoms that 
persist for a long period of time. Um, CDC is actually one that tracks some of that data. And we we have recently put out a report on the, the percentage of uh, folks uh, that, that are adults that were seeing long COVID and about 7% are continuing to see extended symptoms. So we do see it as a phenomena. We don't fully understand it yet, which is why we need more research and to understand what we can do. Well, just one last question on that, because the news from the CDC that research found using Paxlovid uh, during the acute phase of COVID appeared to significantly reduce the risk of post-COVID conditions, but may have increased the risk for adolescents. Uh, would you agree that research has given us some answers, but we, we really need to keep working on this through additional studies like the one NIH is conducting? I'm just wondering, are there enough resources, financial resources uh, focused in on this, or is it for so many people in the rear view mirror uh, in terms mm. of the researcher world? Well, look, we, we have a lot of threats across the board uh, in terms of what's impacting our health, and we need to make sure we're using our resources to look at all of those threats, whether they are, are COVID or, or or others. So we know we need to make sure we're using our research dollars and the heft of not just CDC and NIH um, to make sure we're, we're looking at all of those threats. So I do think we've made quite a sizable investment in research uh, in this space. I'm sure uh, there's always more to do, but I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more from the research that's in the field now. Um, and I, I, again, I, these are important things I think we can partner with academia on um, as they are doing uh, additional work in this space. So more to come, but what we are, are learning is that, you know, folks are having these extended symptoms. We know that vaccinations and treatment can reduce your risk, but I think early days, much more to really understand about, about this disease as we go. And I think we're making pretty sizable investment to be able to answer more about this. And I'm, I'm hopeful this research, like I said, will help inform um, post-viral syndromes that we're seeing from, from other uh, viruses as well. Dr. Cohen, you have an enormous range of things that you and CDC uh, are concerned with. And certainly over these last couple of years, uh, we've been really struck by the increase uh, in uh, suicide and death rates mm -hmm. of suicide in the United States. Just a tremendous tragic circumstance across the country. I think you uh, recently also uh, talked about how heat affects suicide. So we have all these layers of things that are going on. Uh, in the country to be concerned about. I think that's a new detail for some, but I wonder if you could share uh, the initiatives uh, that CDC is undertaking on the mental health front. Just give us a sense of the landscape there. Yes. So very important to make sure we're thinking about health holistically and understanding the threats to our health in different ways. So um, mental health, certainly one. And, and for, uh, you know, really give I am new to CDC, but give credit for actually years of work in the opioid space and overdose space where where data has really informed our ability to understand what was happening in this and to each, actually give communities the data they needed to respond to when we were seeing clusters of overdose. Um, so, you know, that's where data can be incredibly powerful, as well as data from CDC work to lift up best practices. So we think about mental health um, or preventing suicides. That's where CDC has been doing incredible work to identify those best practices that we know work. Um, I want to also remind folks that 988, um, right, is a, is a resource that folks could use if you are struggling right now. 988 is a resource for you to reach out. You are not alone. So those are the 
kinds of common sense solutions to meet folks where they are, maybe in a moment of crisis, to give folks information uh, to keep them well. That's where CDC has a has a big job to keep um, the the health of this nation protected. And we, we can't do it alone. It's in partnership. That's why I'm grateful to be on on the show today to talk about these things because it is it is a team effort uh, that we need to protect health. So certainly what's going on in the health delivery system, our mental health uh, colleagues uh, at, at SAMHSA, but also across the country and our mental health professionals, we all need to be working together on, on identifying the, the best practices and then and scaling them up to make sure that we're protecting folks. Well, that's such an important message. I do want to pull the thread on uh, the, your conversation about data. Your agency is really responsible for collecting a lot of it. You're moving ahead with an outbreak analytics and disease modeling network. Science kind mm-hmm. of exciting in uh, other ways really to improve uh, responses following COVID. Are improvements going to happen in time for this winter's respiratory season? So we are able to already do a bit of modeling of what we we think may happen uh, this uh, fall and winter. Not surprising if all three of these viruses peak and we have bad seasons of all, that's not good. <laughs> but we probably didn't need a model to tell us that. Um, so, you know, what we're trying to do is with each and every passing week, we are able to sort of uh, understand the model a bit, bit, bit differently and and plan for the future. So, for example, we're sitting here in the middle of October. We already know it's likely not to be an early flu season, um, which we didn't know um, because looking at the southern hemisphere, they actually had an early flu season. We're not seeing that here. So that helps us, again, refine the model to understand what's going to happen over the course of the next three to four months to make sure we have the hospital bed. So it, it does continue to uh, inform uh, our work and stay ahead to be able to plan uh, so, so we can predict and then plan. Dr. Cohen, a poll last year found that overall confidence remains high for CDC. Uh, it did show some erosion. And I uh, think this issue of trust and trustworthiness and confidence is so important uh, at this time in our history. I understand you have a plan to rebuild or build even higher trust. Tell us about that plan and what are you hoping to do and what are you expecting to see in terms of results? Well, I think trust is fundamental uh, in protecting folks' health, right? So I, I think if you want to change behavior, that starts with the pace of trust. If people don't trust you, then they're not going to follow your advice. So trust is fundamental. Um, and again, I've already seen our team do incredible work to start to uh, make sure we're coming out of out of an emergency time and uh, helping folks understand the importance of CDC. I think they've gotten to know CDC in a particular way, but remind them of the breadth of what CDC does to protect uh, their health, their community, um, whether right, it's something like COVID or it's something like, uh, for example, malaria, which we, we saw for the first time right. here right. in the United right. States in 20 years, domestic acquired malaria. And the good news is you probably, those of you who didn't hear a lot about it. And that's because the CDC and the state of Florida worked really hard together to jump on that. We we identified it. We responded quickly. We used our best practices and evidence, right? And we were able to not to extinguish what we saw there uh, in Florida. So good results. And that's exactly what the CDC can do for you in terms of working in your backyard. You know, as the new CDC director, you inherited uh, some uh, issues challenging issues, but probably from your lens now, 
you've uh, identified uh, more opportunities. But there are the challenges that I want to focus in on. You're facing at least $1.5 billion in budget cuts and maybe more. And again, just back to how, how do you juggle all these programs and keep employee morale up uh, when it's facing uh, these tight budget constraints? Well, um, I'm actually here in the Washington, D.C. area to, today to talk to members of Congress to help them understand the importance of CDC and why being well-funded is so important. And what I want folks to remember is that more than 70 percent of the dollars that go to CDC flow then directly to states and localities, right? They go right to your back backyard. So I'm trying to help members of Congress understand that when they're funding the CDC, they're actually funding their own communities to be safe and protected. But we have to work together as a system. And that goes back to making sure that we have the data infrastructure, that we're all having that data flow in a way where we can identify threats and respond to them quickly. So we're, you know, we're trying to help folks understand how all those pieces fit together. I think there's more work we have to do on the CDC side to be, uh, to communicate more timely, accurate, simple, uh, common sense solutions um, so that folks understand complexity, but we can make it as clear um, and simple for folks as we possibly can. So we have some work to do on our side to both prioritize, to communicate better, um, but then we need folks to understand the importance of having a strong CDC and what that means in their own backyard, in their congressional district or in their state and how it's working for them. So um, I'm going to keep talking to folks um, about this, and I appreciate you uh, your, your assistance in getting that word out uh, as well for folks who are listening, because a well-funded CDC makes, made, means communities are protected. Well, it's good you're in Washington today and you're talking to some of the right people that you need to win over to that to that way of thinking. And we wish you the best with that. I want to just tackle another subject uh, briefly, and that is in order to accomplish all that you seek to do. There's the issue of workforce and across the entire country in healthcare, writ large, public health, private health, primary care, specialty, you name it. There's a workforce uh, shortage and real challenges in terms of the pipeline. We see this with uh, behavioral health, even when there's funding mm -hmm. trying to mm -hmm. uh, meet the demand for it. How are things at CDC relative to workforce and maybe more importantly in the public health departments around the country that you uh, hear from as you provide these resources and they then need to execute on getting it out into the field? Yeah, so I think workforce is a challenge across a lot of industries, as you were mentioning right now, and public health is not immune to that. Um, I have been traveling all around the country, um, California, Florida, Wisconsin, uh, Massachusetts, they all say the same thing about workforce is tough to recruit and retain good talent. CDC for years has had incredible training programs to make sure we're bringing in uh, talented folks, um, but there's more we can do. And that's what one of the things I'm talking with Congress about, about how once we train fellows, how can we make sure we're retaining them and, and keeping them in public service uh, for their for their career? So there's just a bunch of administrative hurdles that don't need to be there if we want to make sure that we have the workforce um, that is needed. I will say on the for the states and localities, we at CDC are actually trying to help with that and and actually help them with the recruiting of particularly data scientists, which are really hard to recruit, but so necessary for us to be successful. So we're partnering with states on, um, through a, a few different 
vehicles to help them hire the talent that they need. Um, so we're trying to be the best partners we possibly can. And and you mentioned morale. Um, I think that it that we all have to acknowledge that public health has been through a lot in the last number of years. Folks are tired and have been through a traumatic experience of like leading through this pandemic. And so we have to recognize that some folks need, uh, to, you know, to to be one, I, I am doing a lot of just thanking them for that hard work. Um, and also to reconnect with the mission again, um, and to make sure that they're rededicating themselves to that that core mission. That's what we're focused on. That's so important, public health workers, but public heroes as well. So Director Cohen, right. thank you uh, for joining us today. Uh, please uh, uh, thank all of the workers at CDC on our behalf for the great work you do. You. And to our audience, be sure to go online to chcradio.com to sign up for email updates. You can also share your thoughts and comments about this program. Dr. Cohen, thank you again. Thanks for having me. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.